Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great show for you today because we're talking about the prairies. One of my favorite things to talk about, longtime listeners of the show will know that I had the chance to live in Regina for a couple of years. I have a master's degree from the University of Regina, and I had never been to the prairies before I went to Regina. And, and one of my favorite stories that I like to tell about my time out there is the first day when I flew out, because the city is surrounded by prairie, of course, and the airport is right on the edge of the city. and. When you're landing at the Regina Airport, one side of the plane, if you're looking out the window, you can see the city. The other side of the plane, you just see prairie. And I happened to be on the side of the plane that day that was just looking at the prairie. And having never been there before, I'm there to move into the residence at the University of Regina and the plane is getting lower and lower and getting ready to land and i'm sitting there thinking where's the city uh, but over time i learned to love that space the that was outside the city there's just something about the sky on the prairie you know saskatchewan license plates say land of the living skies and it's so true there's something just powerful about the sky in the prairies it makes me feel incredibly small and i mean that in a really positive way it it there, it just gives such scale to everything and there's really nothing quite like watching a storm roll in from the west when you're out on the prairie so i love the region it, it was certainly good to me lovely people i enjoyed my time out there so whenever there's a chance to talk about life on the prairie i am always interested in doing so and excited to do so and today we're talking about a new book entitled crown ditch and the prairie castle bedlam in the west by kyler zeleny and this is a really fascinating book it is based off of kyler's travels through the prairie he's, he's from the prairie but for four years he traveled around documenting what life was like on the prairie as the region undergoes a massive shift you know, rural depopulation, corporate agriculture coming in. There, there's just a lot of change going on in the prairie right now in the book using primarily photographs, profiles that change. So it's a, a, a wonderful project. Kyler was nice enough to come on the show to talk about the book and his experience on the prairie. So without any further ado, here is that conversation. Okay, and Kyler Zeleny joining us today from the Prairies. Hi, Kyler. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join me today to talk about the book. And let's get right into it because this is a subject that I certainly have a soft spot for, as I said in the intro. Of, you know, I loved my time living on the Prairie, but most of my time out there was spent in the city didn't get out to the rural areas, the small towns very much. But I'm curious just to know what was the impetus for this project? Why did you want to go out and document these places that so many folks across the country don't have a chance to go see for themselves? Yeah, well, that's 
That's a long answer, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> it starts, wow, about 10 years ago. So um, I was looking to do a master's program, and I ended up doing one in, in, um, in London, UK. And the course title, I was looking for something that took critical writing uh, or sociology and mixed it with photography. And there's kind of like a very niche space where you can do this. And uh, Goldsmiths in, in uh, London was one of those places. So did this course and the, the title of the course was photography and urban cultures. And so a lot of the concepts were about looking at the urban, what's so important uh, about the urban, et cetera. And I really kind of realized that a lot of the conversation when we, we actually do like spatial studies is, or like urban studies, we don't actually look at the, the opposite, which would be rural studies. Like when we think about space, we think about it often in terms of like, or it's discussed in, in more city-based kind of language. So when a lot of people were like kind of in the program looking at urban centers, I was kind of going through this process of being away from home because mm -hmm. I'm a prairie boy born and raised on a farm outside of a small town, uh, you know, an hour away from Edmonton. So uh, pr pretty rural, like as rural as it gets. And um, I was just kind of fascinated by the idea of like looking at where I came from and where I was at that moment in life and, and thinking that, you know, like we should be thinking more about rural space. So that was kind of the beginning of it. And that started a project. And then from there, that became a book. And then it snowballed into a PhD. And one of the outcomes from the PhD has been this book called The Crown Ditch and the Prairie Castle, which is a artist monograph, essentially just a, a photo book with, with a couple essays in the back. But it kind of all started with just trying to understand my place, I guess, in, in the whole scheme of, of prairies and prairie living. And it was kind of also embedded in this idea that like no one seems to be caring about this space. But also, you know, when I'm 18 and I'm internalizing why I want to leave, because the idea was when you're 18, you just get out. You, get, you know, you get out right. of Dodge. You leave town. Like, you, you go to somewhere because that's what making it looks like or that's what progress looks like. And that's kind of a, a narrative that we've been told really for over 100 years in terms of small town living is the idea of to make it, you have to leave. And that's become more and more true and more and more embedded in the ideology so a lot of youth just leave automatically and that's what i did but there's a lot of things that are great about like being in small towns and being in rural areas and there's a little you know like we can talk about that later but there's there's definitely some pluses to it but i thought it was interesting that we there's this oscillating narrative uh of like good and bad of right. how being in the rural can be a very negative thing backwater uh, rednecky, and then how it could be a very positive thing where you have sense of community and space and connection to the land. So I was interested in looking at those things, and it's been 10 years and continue to do it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's this interesting dynamic, right? That, you know, 200 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago, that to become wealthy and to make it, to use that term again, people would go to the land. Right? You would go out, you would set up a farm or homestead or, or something and that was considered making it and that was where a lot of wealth was coming from and now over the past certainly the the past 25 years and, and probably much longer than that we have seen this rural depopulation where to make it people are going into urban centers and that's also coupled with what seems to me from an outsider's perspective the corporatization of farming uh, in this country at least and, and it, it is it's it's this interesting way in which the whole thing has been completely flipped on its head because when as as i've done in in my uh, job looking at national historic figures so many of them became yeah. wealthy by going west and 
engaging in land speculation. And now it's just the complete opposite, like you say. And it, it, it seems to me that, again, from an outsider's perspective, some of the soul of the rural parts of the country are, are, has kind of been taken away because of that. Yeah, and I mean, if I think it was Margaret Atwood or maybe jo, Jody Berland, who's um, an academic based uh, in Toronto. I can't remember which it was, if it was the writer or the academic. Um, one of them essentially said, if you actually looked at the writing on Canadian space or you know, Canadian nationalism, you wouldn't think that 80% of individuals live in cities because it's so rural-based. Right. We're so focused on this narrative of coming from the land. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a great point. It's so interesting. Coming from the old world to the new world, the way to make it was to, to you know break ground on a farm and prove that land, prove that 80 or 160 acres. And then it's almost like... Almost like as soon as that happened, you know, and a little bit of accumulation occurred, and you started getting a few more acres. You started getting the next generation saying, "What's after this? You know, what's yeah. what's the next adventure? What's the what? What do we move on from?" So now that when I think about the whole system of colonizing the prairies, I think of like homesteading and farming is 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 just kind of one of those steps. Like the mass farming, mass immigration to the prairies was really just about putting a base in place so that we could start to have larger cities and larger industrial spaces. And then we can kind of say, you know, because they're a middle space and middle point, we don't need them anymore. And I think you're absolutely correct. Like hundred percent mechanization of farming on such a scale that we've never seen before. There's um, like land grabbing where there's people are actually speculating on land. This is having a lot in like even around Regina in Saskatchewan in Winnipeg where you get, corporations or hedge funds that are buying up giant pieces and parcels of land. Um, and more recently, there was one, there's three farms that amalgamated. This is somewhere in Winnipeg. And I think they had the cost of land that they were selling when they were going to, you know, get out of farming at what, $57 million. Wow. It's just incredible. Like, uh, yeah thousand plus like thousands of thousands of acres was being sold for this it's just they had these large families that had been cut, become corporations in themselves had kind of pulled together and then they decided to sell 57 million dollars like what they're just the economics of trying to be a farmer and my dad's a farmer so is my grandfather and i help them in harvest when they need the help um and, you know, they ask when I was younger, like, why do you want to get into farming? What about farming? You know, they were never too pushy about it. But they, I think you could tell it was an intergenerational occupation that we had. Right. So they they, they were some interest in having me take that on. Um, and I would just kind of lay it out. I was like, this is what the cost of land is. This is what machinery is like. This is it's big business. Farming is not for the, you know, the entrepreneurial grease soaked hand kind of guy that thinks he can just fix it and do it all himself. Like this is a really complicated operation now. And I don't, people really don't give farmers enough credit for the amount of ingenuity and I don't know, just going through circumstance and being able to continue to want to try to make a living off the land. Um, it, it's, it's tough. So yeah, the, the spirit of the prairies right now is kind of, a little tumultuous. I think we're starting to see this switch and yeah, small town farming is not really viable anymore at all. Yeah. Well, you kind of sense it when, whenever you see interviews with farmers that they have this stereotypical 
farmer almost drawl to them, the, like the way that, that people speak, like that very stereotypical <laughs> way in which you would expect a farmer to speak. When they, when the, you know, the yeah. CBC goes and finds somebody to interview, they sound like that. But the words that are coming out of their mouth could be coming out of the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, right? They're talking about the the margins on certain products, the the market mm -hmm. variability, the 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 trade futures dynamics, markets. the futures yeah. markets, all these things, like the sophistication that the, the business sophistication that goes into any sort of farm. And again, there's a romance that I, certainly people in the city have, I think, because so many people now have little urban gardens and they think mm -hmm. that, well, you know, I grew some cucumbers and some zucchini and some cherry tomatoes. A farm is just a, <laughs> a upscale version of that. Like it, it's, it seems like there's, and I, I certainly can't speak to the connection between urban and rural, but there seems to be such a disconnect between the two, at least in, in my anecdotal experience of living in the city and just not really having a good sense of where agriculture is, where rural communities are in the country. And except for those interviews where I'm amazed at the business acumen of so many of these farmers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's common really. I, I um, there you know, is this concept of like agritourism where you try to get, it's essentially getting urban folks to come out to the rural areas. And I'm definitely a rural advocate and I, you know, I, I, from, from looking at rural culture and photographing and writing about it, uh, I've gone to, you know, a fair share of demolition derbies and I've been to, you know, a rodeo here and there and a powwow there. And I try to get some of my city friends to come out and like, guys, like, let's, let's just like come spend a weekend. Like let's even a day, let's go and check out this demolition derby in the small town. Just let's just experience that. Cause I think it's a good experience in general. And I mean, I'm deriving value from it, but I think you guys can too. And it's 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 oh, really difficult to get anyone to really be that interested in that and you know i mean like the competition of our time for um entertainment purposes is just it's really difficult i mean do you really want to be going to a small town and checking out a rodeo when maybe you can just go to the lake and relax and i feel like that's like what what urban individuals want to do with their free time is probably not spend it you know going on a, a bison farm and, and right. touring and seeing how that operation works although it, you think i don't know i think that they should but but again you know in the same way i think everyone should be educated about voting but you know no, no right. yeah, yeah. we're gonna find a number of people that aren't gonna do that um yeah so i mean there's definitely a there's very very few eyes from the urban spaces or spheres looking into the rural and trying to understand the rural and i think if we're not too careful about that and if we don't continue to try to find some sort of bridge, especially if these communities start to become less viable as communities, um, as functioning communities, then we might have some real animosity and we might have some sort of like discontent. And that kind of shows up a little bit in, in voting patterns and the idea of conservatism in rural areas. But I think, I think rural individuals and the same, like maybe if we're going to make the comparison to like how the West in general feels towards the east western canada which is a, a largely rural space like even talking about saskatoon that is it's still a rural city still a prairie city and there's like certain things about it that feel prairie but yeah if we're, if we're not too careful about this it's going to breed some sort of division and that's one thing that i'm become more and more focused on is is a, how do we in a general sense is like almost like a political philosophy is how do we 
just bridge more conversations and just listen to each other and dialogue as opposed to running to the polls of left versus right. I, I think that's a really good point because, yeah, that disconnect can be so damaging and, and the possibility of animosity, you're already seeing it in certain pockets of the country and, and towards other pockets of the country. And it's definitely unhealthy because we're all basically on the same team, right? Everyone wants the same things out of life for the most part with some variations, but everyone wants to be healthy and happy uh, and, you know, be secure, be able to provide for themselves and their family. And, and that those yeah. things are universal. And where you live, urban, rural, east, west, whether you're right, left, like th those things don't come into play in terms of the, the needs that you have. So in going through and, and doing the book and, and putting it all together, what did you find in these communities? What what are the concerns of the people who are still there, who are living there? And what are they looking at in the future in terms of some of the big challenges facing the prairies? Yeah, I think I have phrased it this way. Um, the prairies is kind of a space that looks back. So they're really focused I think they're they're interested in trying to understand what the what the future can bring for them I don't know if they have the best kind of solution and I think a lot of the time we ended up going back and it becomes in the same way that we do it for like Canadian writers write about the rural or or, or nature in Canada is this like place of nostalgia um, and another word for it would you know it's like heritage building I think a lot of people, like I had tons of conversations. It was all about going to towns, photographing people, places in towns, and also like the landscapes. So those the three kind of components. So actually chatting with individuals was a big part of the project and just even just listening to them. And um, I think a good number of them are kind of largely indifferent to this whole conversation. I don't think, I mean, at, you know, at the end of the day, they're people living their lives. And I don't know how much they've really thought about what, depopulation looks like and what happens when a certain grant doesn't you know come up the year after or gets you know defunded by the provincial or the federal government things like that but then you could find like a certain number of people that were really on it about the changes taking place with within rural spaces and they were always had like this little bit like tinge of alarmist in them like they kind of saw what was occurring and what was coming and a number of people started to even talk about this idea of like planned obsolescence where there was political bodies, it was called the federal government maybe, was purposely doing things to make the rural areas less viable. Um, and there are like actually a number of instances that I've even anecdotally kind of come across where I actually think that's occurring. Uh, but you can't really say if it's planned because we have a hate on rural culture or because it's really hard to operate a school when you only have maybe seven or eight people in, in, right. in the upper grades, you know, like it's just not feasible. It doesn't make sense economically, but there are a couple things that were being done that also didn't make sex, sense economically to kind of defund these spaces. So I think that's like this general fear, like people just don't want to see drastic changes to their lifestyle. I think there's a lot of people that really enjoy living out in rural spaces and they want to continue to see those spaces be viable and vibrant. And I think a lot of communities are really just trying hard to also just retain youth. And it's like, it's an impossible task. So when I started, the PhD became or is about um, looking at like visualizing the prairies and like 
what is the idea of the region and how does it look and, and you know throwing some images with space and place and history um, concepts mashing them together and, and making a document of this place but it initially was kind of about how can we make communities more viable and very quickly I realized like that oh, that sounds like a terrible I mean it would, actually it would be like a great PhD thesis but I also just sound like a terrible undertaking because I can't think of like how on mass you can save small towns like I don't know what you can really do, just the way that we're kind of headed into the 21st century, the way individuals want to live, the access and amenities they want to have. I don't really know how you can keep a lot of small towns viable. Um, maybe you have some ideas. <laughs> well, I, well, it's tough, right? Because when you think about the, some of the political decisions that get made, they're made with politicians. And this is a, a a complaint I have of, of politicians that so many of them are career politicians that the yeah. focus is on how do I get reelected, right? That that's yeah. the, the, such, such a focus of politicians today is looking towards the next election. And given that there is this disconnect between urban and rural spaces and urban populations don't seem to pay much attention to rural populations, Investing in rural areas doesn't provide a political uptick. There's no benefit politically yeah. to doing it because the votes are so central in the urban spaces, particularly urban spaces in Ontario and Quebec, that mm -hmm. providing some sort of resource and, or investing in rural spaces in the West just doesn't have that political benefit to it. Therefore, the parties, all of them, are less inclined to do it. Like even even, you know, a party that has a lot of support in the prairies, they're probably going to have that support anyway. Right? When you look at the other parties, the other options that are available, so there just isn't that. There isn't the political power or the political might in these regions that perhaps they used to have, and I think that's a large part of it that. There's nothing pushing on the politicians because the, pol the the populations in these locations are smaller than urban spaces. Mm -hmm. And the urban spaces, particularly the ones in the east, don't have much of a or they're not front of mind. I, I don't want to be so callous as to say that people in urban spaces in the east don't care about farmers because I don't think that's entirely true. But they're not a political issue for people in these places and therefore you know, people in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal aren't pushing for policies that are supportive of farmers, which is dangerous in that if we lose agriculture and turn it over to these large companies that control just vast swaths of the prairies, that is dangerous because that's where so much of the food that we eat comes from. You know, if if we didn't have farmers, I'd be dead in a month. Right. Like I, yeah. I, I can't sustain myself. So, right. it, you know, it's really dangerous. And I think it's something that and maybe I'm biased in that I, I lived in the prairies again in an urban space in the prairies. But you just just seen the scale, the size of it and the amount of pride that is taken by people involved in the agriculture industry and just in small towns in general it's it's really overwhelming and it it's something that as as somebody again living in a city in the east i i don't want that to go away it's such a valuable part of what this country is and 
Part of it is the romantic cultural heritage that we all like to envision. But there's also a, a very real practical economic benefit to ensuring that these places are viable and people want to continue to live there. 80% of Canada's population is urban based, right? So just going back a little farther in the conversation, yeah. I think whenever you have a group that is larger, they're going to have more power often, right? Sure. Um, and that group is going to kind of dictate terms. And that's essentially what's happening regionally. And for like, it's, it's, it's on point, like how, I think that's also a little bit of what I was trying to do with my work is it was kind of twofold. It was about giving a space, the prairies that doesn't really have a lot of visual culture. There's not really a lot of photographers that are kind of looking at this large area or the region. Right. So giving some sort of document where this is kind of like we can start to build our visual culture a little better. So that was part of it. And the other thing was, was kind of external. So essentially how, how can we get people to like put some eyes on, on prairie spaces and how do we like kind of put the focus back onto this area that, I mean, one of the reasons that it's not often discussed in media or it's not really on the radar of everyone is because it's not sensationalized. Right. I mean, it's a very slow process going from a, a one kilometer section with X number of farmers to it having one farmer and being owned by a corporation. Right. And, this is also super important because we saw this with the meat industry in Western Canada is when you collectivize these spaces and turn them into large factories and, and industries, then our food security is significantly in jeopardy. And we actually saw this with COVID with there was a, a butchering plant in I think it was it's high, high level or high river, Alberta, that um, does a significant portion. There's like three places that let slaughter um, slaughter pigs in I think Canada and they do about 90% of all the the volume so what happens when one of those plants you know we, we have to go back to a small scale um, I think in animal husbandry and also farming so either grain or cattle farming and when we don't do that we just become farther and more disconnected from our food supply chain and it becomes like yeah a real food issue like we have abundance but we also have really complicated systems that are required to continue to move in order for that abundance to continue to exist for us. For sure. And you see it too with potatoes right now, right? There's too many potatoes and with restaurants shut down that are, I know they're starting to open up, but you know, people, there's certainly an issue in PEI that they just had too many potatoes. And I didn't again, know about part this. Of, yeah, there's there's too many potatoes. They want us to eat eat all the potatoes because uh, we have so many potatoes that yeah. just aren't going through the same commercial format or the commercial enterprising that would normally take place. So that that again is a problem that everything gets centralized within these one or two large companies, and then something goes wrong, and this element of the food chain goes away, or at the same time. I know it's not a Canadian example, but with red onions, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the company in the U.S. had to recall red onions. And again, if, if so, all of these products are coming through one source or one or two sources, when you have something like that happens, that creates a huge ripple that could have major impact on public health. And then you also have environmental issues because these large scale corporate farmers 
or farming corporations, I should say, aren't yeah aren't organizations with the greatest of track records environmentally. Uh, there was a study <laughs> last year that said large scale commercial like corporate farming of soybeans is worse for the environment than small scale like free range beef production which yeah. sort of goes against the narrative of eating plant-based stuff but if the plant-based stuff is being farmed in an irresponsible way that like so all of these things just point to smaller scale farming being a, a better way in terms of food production environment economically there's just so many benefits to these types of processes and ensuring that these places are viable that it, it goes be well beyond the people who live in these spaces it, it if, if it all goes away and turns into corporate agricultural space and that's all the prairie is that's going to have a huge ripple effect for the people in the cities which is why it should probably be a political issue yeah i mean it i i'm i'm like I'd wave my hand and be like, yeah, that's an issue. I've seen that for a while. But to like to get other people to get on board with that and, and put that into like you need a, a significant amount of hindsight even to be able to politically plan for that. Right. And it's just like yeah. who's going to care in this climate right now um, with a lot of protests, with covid, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of changes, um, even just, you know, like how how can you be like, oh, yeah, and like just just so you guys know, the, the rural farmer is also in danger. We should probably talk about him. It, it's, yeah, I can, just, I can just see a lot of people saying, "Why the fuck would I care right now?" Like, there's bigger things afloat, right? You know, and it's. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's we're seeing a breakdown of a system, and I think what the real issue is once we can just use one small community as an example. Once a small community kind of hits this tipping point of being functional to no longer being viable. There's really no coming back. You, I can't imagine. I mean, I've probably been to 100, 200 communities, rural communities under the size of 10,000. And the ones that are in, you know, above 2,000, uh, generally are going to do quite fine. But most, about 160, I've, I've been to are under 1,000 for population. Wow. And you can see that there's a, a point within those communities where yeah, it's a flip of a coin, really. If five years from now that community will be viable. And, one community that's just directly north of where I'm from uh, is called Andrew, and f 10 years ago it was vibrant and it was it was bumping. They built a new school, like they had tons of businesses. It seemed like it was going to do fine. And if you drive through that community today, you would be amazed. These are also aging spaces, right? So yeah. without youth influx, which it's hard because there's no jobs, um, very few jobs, and I think the writing's kind of on the wall for a number of communities, and there's really no saving them. And then once they go past that point, there's no bringing them back. Because I haven't seen a community that was looking pretty dire and was able to revitalize itself, to have some sort of resurgency as a, a community where people would want to live. And once uh, you know utilities and facilities and amenities start to kind of dwindle, yeah, it's kind of you know to the grave for these places from from the gravel and the dirt that, you know, they started as from then to pavement, back to gravel, then to dirt, you know? Right. Well, it's like, yeah, you know, if there's no schools and kids have to travel to go to school and then they don't want to stay in the community. But on the other end, if you don't have hospitals or, or doctors, 
then older people are going to have to move where yeah. they're closer to medical facilities too, right? And yeah. so if the only mm -hmm. people who can live in these towns are between the age of 20 and 60, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, and I mean, I, I go to a lot of the um, the events in my hometown just over the years because I'm like the next project I'm working on is actually looking specifically at my hometown of Mundare. And, you know, they, we do a number of functions and events, and you can see the population for those events is dwindling. I think, you know, I've kind of pointed to that where it's like, I think people would rather just go to the lake than hang around and see a small town parade they've seen for 20 years already or 40 years. But um, I, I'm very cognizant of what age bracket that I exist in, and I look around and I'm like, I'm the only one around here that's in this age. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's, I don't know, maybe I'm looking at like 100, 150 people, and there's like four of us maybe that fit this and that's demographically i mean maybe there are people residing in that community within my age group i think there is but they're not active and functional in the community in the same way that 20 30 years ago they would have been so i guess and we could probably talk about community in more of a general sense we're seeing a different type of community now we're seeing it differently in in rural spaces but also urban spaces so that's also not so much an urban rural issue as it is maybe just a, a change in what contemporary living looks like. Although you'll still get people, you know, in their twenties and thirties going to farmer's markets in the city, but sure. you be hard pressed to find a farmer's market and people in their twenties and thirties in small towns. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Like every week I walk past a, a farmer's market in, in Ottawa here down at Lansdowne park. And you're right. The place is packed. Uh, people yeah. love the idea of it. Uh, and certainly in Ottawa here in the fall, they and i guess in the spring too but i think of it as a fall activity people go out to the sugar bush um, you know they have the the setup where you can take like a, a wagon ride and see them tap all the maple trees and and you have lunch and it's a thing so that's a, a sort of a local thing here that sounds pretty and, fun <laughs> and it, it is it, it can be a fun time but again that's sort of that agro tourism that you're talking yeah. about before that that doesn't necessarily lead to a long-term sustainable growth or, or just sustainability for right it's uh, sporadic things. influx really and and it doesn't work for every you can't have what was, what was the name of it they do the sugar bush There's the sugar bush yeah yeah you can't have i mean i can't i can't imagine you can have like 100 sugar bushes right like in the same way that you can't have like on the prairies 100 towns doing pumpkin growing contests like or right. like there's a real limit to uh, agri-tourism um sure tourism in general for like so i think and that was one of the things that people like kind of talked about a little bit was like well we just need to like get a hook and and invite people to our communities through some sort of like tourism just like if everyone's doing that all these small towns and you know this the supply is high but the demand is staying the same i mean yeah. what's what's it all for i mean i don't think that's really the solution it kind of happened with a lot of towns in what I mean started even in like the 70s and continues today make these giant objects which is kind of an interesting thing it's a very prairie thing too right yeah I think they do it a little bit out east they also do it in the United States in some areas but the prairies I think is like the hot spot for we want to make something giant right so our yeah. our town Mundare has a giant 42 foot fiberglass sausage <laughs> that is like a homage to the fact that there's a sausage making factory here that's really well known for its sausages and you get think like these weird icons of the prairies and i mean i think it draws people out I mean, people stop but i don't know who's driving like 
you know, it's it's not like someone's like, like, hey, Vern, like, let's go in the car. We need to go to Mundare to like look at that giant <laughs> sausage. Like, that's what we need to do right now. Like, uh, right. Yeah, it, it's like that corner gas episode where they want to build the world's biggest hoe. <laughs> uh, <right? laughs> yeah, <laughs> they have that idea. But and I think part of it is to proximity to the city because you're, you know, these programs or these things are trying to draw in people mm -hmm. who live in urban centers. So yeah. if you're 45 minutes from Edmonton, probably a little easier than if you're four hours from Edmonton. Just Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, 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 the opportunity cost, it matters in the whole equation as well. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Mundare is like 45 minutes away from, from Edmonton. So you can still, even people that can live in the community and vice versa and commute. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, there's also a number of communities near Calgary, like Nanton and Claire's home. Those are really good examples of they're really just relying on the draw of the city. And I think they'll continue to do quite well. And that's a place where you can have a distillery or an antique shop. And like, it's a cool mm -hmm. shop. Like it's uh, kind of what you see in like, what's the apothecary store that's in um, Schitt's Creek. Like that would never work in most small towns, maybe in Ontario, I, and that's one of the things about, that's interesting about the uh, the concept of that that uh, series. I don't think they ever really discuss place, which I think is interesting because I think they're trying to make it more universal and have that American appeal. But it's also it's like ambiguous, like rural living. And but that like that apothecary store that they like put would never work in so many small towns. Like no way. Yeah. Um, so it's a little dream. But I actually like really like Corner Gas for how ridiculously accurate it is <laughs> and like it still has like it's such good comedy but it's that's a really great show but it is also very tropey right and sure and tropes can be really good things they can create nostalgia or create ideas but then they can also be limiting right so stereotypes not always a good thing sometimes a good thing huh? right uh, i think another element of this that we've kind of touched on a bit that should address i think Again, and this is anecdotal from my experience in the city, but in the process of reconciliation, I do feel as though urban people who live in urban centers tend to think of reconciliation as a rural thing. And they think of land dispossession as rural, as opposed to being just a complete nationwide thing. And mm. I don't know if, if there's actually been anyone who's looked at the practical implication of whether one, whether or not this is true. And two, if there is any influence on how people view rural areas as a result of that. But that is the sense I get that when urban people or people who live in urban centers think of a process of reconciliation, they don't think of the land where the city is. They think of rural space as part of that. And that's part of just a colonial thinking of, of how people tend to conceptualize indigenous peoples but I, I do think that that's another way in which urban communities tend to separate themselves from rural communities. I, and I don't know how valid that is, but from my anecdotal experience in teaching here in Ottawa, that seems to be a way a lot of folks who live in cities think about rural space. Yeah, I, I have very little experience with this topic, but I find that very fascinating. I mean, like, I, a lot of my colleagues and anyone I'm ever talking to that generally that's from a university will, will place uh, in their email signature, like, you know, located at campus X, which is part of, uh, you know, X territory. Um, yeah. So there was always that, like, this acknowledgement and identifying of this space 
was collected and taken through this specific colonial process. But yeah, I think a lot of um, like the idea of like the settler, like colonial settler, um, yeah. is like a. I mean, if you think like, yeah, who has all the land? It's it's the settlers. It's not those living in cities that have you know maybe one lot on a block. You know? <laughs> right. um, so I mean, in terms of the economics of it, it's probably more viable to to start looking if this was like to dispossess land and give land back, it would probably be something that would be rural. But I mean, we've already kind of seen how reserves work, even like that was all a very shitty option to give them just really unprofitable and unproductive land so that we can use the right. productive land to do our thing. Um, but it's still like, it's still an interesting process where um that's maybe not the most viable thing. Maybe they should start offering up city lots to individuals and, and groups and communities, which is, I don't know, I, the process I have no idea or an idea. Yeah, I think it's really just a case of, of acknowledging that the country, the, the political entity of Canada is one that is based off of land dispossession of indigenous peoples. And that is a coast to coast to coast reality. And as long as we have that as our starting point, then it'll actually, I think, allow for a, a better process of reconciliation as we move forward and, and rightly continue to move forward towards reconciliation across the country. Uh, I do also, okay, I want to get back to something you talked about earlier. And mm -hmm. you talked about the visual culture of the prairies. This is something, and this is by far the biggest thing that I've taken away from my time living in Regina. And I get into arguments with people all the time that <laughs> the prairies are beautiful. I love the prairies. And to go back to Corner Gas, the first scene in this Corner Gas series is a guy pulls into the gas station. He says, you know, the land, like Saskatchewan's really flat. There's nothing to see. And uh, Brent comes out and he says, well, there's plenty to see. There's nothing to block your view. And this is an idea that I really believe in. And I know in Saskatchewan, the license plates, I assume they still say land of the living skies. And there is nothing as powerful to me as seeing a storm roll in across the prairies. It is just unbelievable to see it. And, you know, you folks in BC and, and Alberta, Take your mountains. You can have them. I, I don't care. Uh, you know, just enjoy them. You all like them. And, and one of the one of the arguments that I've gotten in is just you can see forever, and that's great. And somebody said to me, "Well, if you go to the top of the mountain, you can see forever." And I said, "Yeah, but you have to climb to the top of a mountain to do it. On the prairie, I can just walk outside and do it." And when, you know, when I've I've done the train across the country a couple times, everyone okay, loves yeah. the mountains part, and the mountain yeah. part is, is is beautiful. Don't get me wrong, Jasper is is spectacular, but when you're in the middle of the prairie, I don't think there's anything quite like it in the world. So I, I think the visual culture of the prairies is so powerful; it makes me feel incredibly small to just see the sky. So, which yeah, which is so interesting because a lot of people yeah. would think of a of, of a a rock face, a giant mountain, and be right. like, "I feel small in comparison to this giant rock." <laughs> right. I, it's just like the vast, like the 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 ability to just see forever and you know see till you can't see anymore. That I love that part of it. And I don't know if I necessarily even have a question, but <laughs> the the but when you think of the visual culture of the prairies, what 
comes to mind for you? Because for me, it's the sky and just the the mass horizon. Yeah. Well, part of it's also disentangling it from what lies below the 49th parallel too, right? So, sure. Um, or problematizing it, including some parts of what lies below in um, and grouping it into a wider region that doesn't have, there's no distinction with uh, some imaginary border that we drew, right? Or some, sure. some, some white guys, some white surveys drew like 200, 300 years ago, whenever it was fully drawn. But, um, so sky is such a key component, but it is also in other, like Montana talks about big skies as well. Alberta does. Yes. And I think anywhere in that Midwest would probably be like, they would, you know, you went into one of those bars and you said, I'm from Alberta or I'm from Saskatchewan. We have the biggest skies. I think some, some, <laughs> some people might like, I don't know, dart their eyes at you and be like, excuse me. I don't know about that one. But I don't think it's, it's, it's fighting words, but it's definitely like, what are you talking about? We have the big skies over here. So it is, I mean, you talked about like, yeah, you got to get to the mountain peak in, in the Rockies to be on top and to see the view. And you don't see actually in every direction too, because you have so many other mountain peaks that are also blocking yeah. just outside of the valleys. Right. Um, but on the prairies, I mean, one way to phrase it is every step you take is the peak, right? Yeah. It's also sure. the valley. Right. So um, I personally think that they're beautiful. I find as I lived, you know, when I was doing my uh, PhD in, in uh, Toronto, like I'd take a couple drives out and, you know, go from, you know, take train or a car from, you know, Toronto to either Montreal or Ottawa. And like, I found those drives claustrophobic or those train oh, rides death. claustrophobic. They're, they're brutal. Because yeah. all they're I can see is brutal. trees on either side. Yeah. There's, when you um, get, when yeah. you get close to the lake, if you're taking a via rail uh, uh -huh. trip, you do get well, close to the lake for part of it. And that's kind of cool. But when you're just next to the 401, and it, so it's the 401 on one side and trees on the other, it is there's just nothing to look at. No, it's not. It's not real great. I don't know for me at least. I, yeah. You know, everyone, everyone, you. everyone has their landscape. But there's um, like I, I don't know if if I made this up or someone else did. But there's there's one you know one guy that lives in the Rockies. Um, is standing, you know, next to a guy that lives in the prairies and they're facing east and they're looking at the Rockies and past that's the prairies. And, you know, the guy from the Rockies is like, wow, isn't that beautiful? It's such a nice view. And the guy from the prairies is like, what do you mean? It's blocking the view, right? So <laughs> it's, um, I think one thing that I use the term banal and, in, and not so much in like, there's a number of ways that that term has been used academically. Uh, like I think Foucault talked about it, Hannah Arendt talked about it, but just really banal in the uh, same sense as like the everyday and ordinary. And I like to think that we have generally a visual culture that's very banal. Like we're kind of like the slightly, and going back to this talking about this comparison with the United States, we're the slightly more boring America. And I think even visually, I'm trying to, or what I try to do is say like in my head, I was like, we're not, I'm going to go out and photograph how we have our own visual uniqueness and how photographically that can be perceived as beautiful. And I'd say probably I kind of failed on that because I did prefer more photographing generally in the United States, actually, when I was in Montana or like Kansas or something like I, I just think there's something more visually aesthetic to the way that things are constructed and the materials that are used. I think we're just so banal north of the border that everything 
becomes like um, a, a mild replication of another town, essentially, because they're all built in like this really close succession and time period, right? And I don't know how you kind of like try to make that beautiful. I mean, through rep repetition, maybe that's one way, but um, one thing that someone, this is like early on, was looking at my photos, and I've had this comment more than once. I don't really take these things negatively, but once someone said it was like, it looks like America, but just like uh, a little, a little tilted, you know, like a little off. Like it doesn't, it seems American-esque. It's like if someone had to go report back to Europe and be like, this is what America looks like. It'd be like, that's right. kind of it, but not it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. We're, we're just so similar and we just rely so heavily on our Southern neighbor for identity and ideas of what culture look like. Well, I mean, especially in the way those areas were colonized, you know, the, the process is very similar. And again, that the 49th parallel, it's an arbitrary marker between the two countries. So the, the relationship, and I think this exists across the country to a large extent, that the relationship North South culturally is a lot more similar than it is East West. Yeah, you know, absolutely. People, in, pe people yeah. in Vancouver have more in common with people in Seattle than mm -hmm. they do with people in Fredericton, just culturally. It's just oh. it's the way it is. Even Yeah, even people in like Calgary and Vancouver, you know, yeah. Vancouverites and I don't know if you call them Seattleites, but Seattle folk would be so much more. And I got that sense too when I was in Montana. It's like the, the geographical form formations in North America run north to south or south north. Like they don't run yeah. east west really, right? So it's so much easier to see how industry and climate and, and like just even how things are spaced out, how Alberta and Montana would be so much more on the same page than Alberta and dense Toronto or, you know, dense Ottawa. Yeah. And, and to get back to the colonization part of it, when you look at, and not, not that I've done this extensively, but I've been involved in uh, one project that looked at uh, land uses by indigenous peoples prior to colonization mm. that they the communities would go back and forth across the 49th parallel all the time yeah. and you know and that would that seems to have taken place all across what is now the two countries and so before that line was there the people who were here for thousands of years were just going back and forth because naturally that is just the best way for communities to grow and to use the space yeah and i mean if like if we're following bison or buffalo herds yeah. We're following them specifically, like as they move, right? And they can move past that border. It wouldn't be very uncommon. Yeah, as so. uh, as as a farmer once said, as famously <laughs> quoted about uh, about daylight saving time. It's the same with the border. Like cows don't care where the border is. Like cows yeah. are going to go where they're going to go, right? Same with bison. Same with everything. They're just going to go. So uh, I want to get you out of here on this. We've talked so much about the prairie and, and the culture of it and, you know, the motivation of the book. But what is your goal of or for readers? Like when somebody gets this book, goes through it, what are you hoping that they take away from it? Yeah. Well, so I, I want to preface this by saying um, the book photo, you know, the photos plus the text is a narrative. It's a narrative of what prairie space and culture and the region is for me. Um, so there are like multiple narratives, which I think is important to kind of stress, especially now where history is really kind of being challenged, Canadian history, American history in a real positive sense. So 
Um, but for me, like, this is just one of the many narratives. This is what I'd like people to get or take away from, um, from the project. It's one of the many narratives of what it is to be in the Prairie region. That's it. This is just the way that I see the space as, you know, a white dude in his early 30s who yeah. has, uh, you know, farming and small town roots. Um, it's just one of the narratives. And um, I think it's still an important one. I think we still need to continue to be a stronger region in terms of our visual culture. As a Canadian nation, I think we need to be a nation with stronger cultural cohesiveness and ties or even just like the cohesiveness of understanding the mosaic that it is and how different it is as a as a way to be cohesive in in a telling of of our nation and stuff i think we rely too heavily on external ideals like there's this this common trope within canadian critical studies of peering over the fence to look south to try to understand who we are right yeah um and i think we do that too often so this is just one of those texts that is really just about hey this is a region that is large is a large part of the Canadian prairies or is the Canadian prairies or is a large part of the Canadian nation. We don't have a lot of text. We don't have a lot of visual work coming out of this area. This is just what one of them is. And I hope more will follow. And yeah, we certainly encourage everybody to go get the book again. It is crown ditch and the prairie castle bedlam in the West. So Kyler, where can people find the book? Uh, on the great internet. So if they go to uh, the publisher's website, thevelvetcell.com, there's a link there, or I guess on my website too, um, kylerzeleni.com, and free in international shipping, which is pretty great. Yes, nothing wrong with that, uh, yeah. especially in this period where you know we're pretty much ordering everything. A lot of stuff is being <laughs> yeah. ordered online. So free shipping when you can get that. It's always a bonus. So, uh, yeah. Kyle Zelny, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I love uh, these chats, and, I mean, this was, for me, pretty illuminating, so I enjoyed it. So there you have it, my conversation with Kyler Zelny. My thanks to him for taking the time to join me today. And, again, the book is Crown Ditch and the Prairie Castle, Bedlam in the West. So definitely encourage you to check that one out. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts. Do the ratings and the comments and all that stuff. It helps other people find the show, keeps us going here. So definitely would appreciate anybody who is listening and enjoys the show to go in and uh, leave those comments, leave those ratings. It really helps us out. And also head on over to activehistory.ca. We are in the midst of the summer, which is a bit of a slower season for us usually. Not quite as many posts, but the stuff that's there is really great stuff. So uh, definitely head on over to activehistory.ca and check out not only the written material, but also some of our past episodes. Last week we had Steve Marty talking about volunteerism during the First World War. Uh, if you're into the war stuff, the military history, we had Alex Suchin a few weeks ago as well. So uh, just a, a lot of great episodes over the past few weeks as we continue to go on the weekly schedule through the pandemic, which hopefully doesn't last forever but uh, certainly uh, i've enjoyed increasing the frequency of the episodes hopefully you've enjoyed them as well and we're going to continue with the weekly schedule for the foreseeable future so you'll want to subscribe to make sure you get all those episodes so thanks again for listening 
We will be back with you again next Thursday. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you.